0: This is the What Matters Most podcast, a 100%
1: listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman.
0: Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone who tunes in and supports the show. It means a lot. And I really appreciate everyone around the world who writes in with guest suggestions or even shares a story or what a show meant or has questions. If you wrote me, you know you got an answer. I write everyone back. Thank you. Today we have a beautiful, beautiful guest. She's written a series of books that went number one. That's the I Am series. I really love her latest work, though. Say One Kind Thing, Lessons in Acceptance, Love, and Letting Go. What an honor to finally have on the show, Miss Susan Verde. Thanks for coming on.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you.
0: Before we get into anything, we have to talk about why is coffee so amazing? You're a coffee person.
1: (laughs) I am literally sitting with a cup of coffee right next to me. I don't know why it's so amazing. I think for me, it's so enmeshed in the things I do. You know, It's part of the sort of little ritual I create that you know, work or returning emails or whatever—it just takes like the edge off all of that and makes it kind of a a pleasant, you know, experience while while doing it. I but you know, I I, I don't know exactly. Do you feel the same way about coffee?
0: My espresso's right here, and I just think it's better, the smell of it, and thank God they still have studies that say it's good, because every once in a while studies come out and say it's bad, but I latch on the ones that say it's good. I just think it's life's better with coffee, and my brain works better.
1: Agreed. Agreed. All of it. I think so, too. Yeah.
0: Give me your brew. How do you go? Do you just grind your own? Give me the full low down here.
1: Yeah, it's not that deep, actually. I am a, I love my Nespresso. Maybe that's a terrible thing to say, but I just love it. And I try all the different flavors and I don't know, unfortunately or fortunately, my child has also, who's 17 now, has become a bit of a coffee addict. So we have our little coffee time together, but yeah, it's just, you know, very simple, easy. I, I, um, there was a point in time where I, I enjoyed sort of grinding my own and all of that, but now it's you know why? <laughs> I've got this. Why? Why do it? And you? What do you do? Do you grind? Do you have a special blend that you like?
0: I've never been a grind guy on the coffee scene. Uh, by the way, speaking of espresso, I'm not that purist. I have friends who are real purist. The thing has to be made of the material, everything i was visiting nashville and they have this nespresso machine and i ordered all the of course the strongest i love that thing and but i have this german espresso maker and then i get coffee from martha's vineyard there's this morning glory farm This free advertisement for simon and his crew they just have the greatest espresso i found it might be the magic of the vineyard and i have that sent to me it's already ground and oh god is that good it is some good stuff and I just like sipping one and I'm on a, a like a purification kick right now because I'm not putting any uh, cream in mine because I was uh, getting a little fat and so or sugar and all that I love like doing the the real latte thing so now it's just it's black and strong and wonderful
1: it sounds sounds amazing yes no, I love it. I I I just it's the sort of the happiest part of my day.
0: <laughs> all right. We're on the line Susan, how did you find your way into the world of mindfulness?
1: Oh, mindfulness. Well, mindfulness was something I practiced on my own. i I, I started with yoga and it sort of led into mindfulness. and you know, I was a very anxious person as seems like most of the world is right now. Um, And it was just something that uh, it was a tool that worked for me. Um, And so it was something I wanted to learn more about for myself and practice for myself. And then I was a teacher for many years. And, you know, it sort of occurred to me that uh, kids are so stressed out all the time. And wouldn't it be nice if they also had some tools that they could turn to in whatever moment they needed um, and so I, I, that, that's what made me dig a little deeper and, and want to become someone who, who teaches those things to kids. So, uh, it's just, it's been with me for a while. I think it also helps, you know, it helps with the writing, of course, because I, I there's just an awareness that I find myself able to kind of tap into when I'm, when I'm working and, and writing and thinking. Uh, it also is a nice break when I'm stuck. <laughs> so it's just, it's been with me for a long time.
0: It's truly life-changing. I would say it's the most important thing I've ever gotten into. Meditation. It changed my life. Agreed. Did you ever uh, get involved or hear of a, a company called the Inner Explorer with Laura Bakash, who has meditation in schools all over the country? Yes. Congressman Tim Ryan is involved. He's been on the show a bunch of times talking about it.
1: It's so great, I, I have to say. Mindfulness has so when I started teaching yoga uh, to children in schools, it was a it was a, not an easy journey. There was a lot of fear and sort of pushback, and um, but when mindfulness came on the scene as this you know thing uh, that had sort of quantifiable results. Uh, it became more accepted in the schools and then um, it just kind of opened the doors to to all of those sorts of mindful minutes and mindful movement and things like that, which I think have been life changing for a lot of these kids.
0: What's your definition of mindfulness? People always ask me, what's mindfulness? What's what's that?
1: Mindfulness to me is is awareness, awareness. It, it It's awareness in the moment of what is going on around me and what is going on within me. Uh, It doesn't mean that I'm fixing things or changing who I am or whatever. It's just, okay, in this moment, this is how I'm feeling. And this is what I can do for myself. I can give myself a moment to choose my response. So mindfulness is this awareness and then ultimately choice, in my opinion.
0: How did that help you, because you were a city girl in New York City? I don't know how people live in big cities. I love the energy, but for a full-time gig, it's uh feels very natural for my my way of being,
1: yeah, no i I loved it. I mean, I didn't know anything else, so it was just and you know, I grew up in the West Village in the like early seventies, late, you know, in onward. to me, my little community felt connected and diverse and beautiful and uh just I don't know full of life. so it, it, it you know I did I again I didn't know any better but it just it kind of energized me in a way that I still I still hold on to
0: and really if you practice, you can find it anywhere if one of the positives when I'm spent time in New York City is I find myself meditating a lot more to cope. and just for anyone listening around the world, it's really hard to be a human being. I don't think it's ever been easy. And I, even though we have a lot of modern conveniences right now, it's really hard.
1: It's really hard. And you're right. I think one of my favorite things to do is just like sit on a random stoop and be, you know, meditate or observe or just be for a moment. Um, it's one thing I miss where I live now is a random stoop. <laughs> it's my favorite. But yeah, it is very difficult being a human being, especially right now, I think.
0: Did you see the studies that are coming out that about how depressed young people are, especially young women and suicidal and depressed? And of course, i got I see a lot of older white men scratching their head to go, "Why? the market's up, and my stocks are great, and the GMP, And I just want to cry. I'm sure you're in touch with all that. What's your take? And do you have any theories?
1: I mean, there are so many things. I, I think that, you know, I have three teenagers um who've all gone through various stages of depression gender identity all of these things and um and I've been around their friends and I've seen the reports and I I just think it's a it's like a perfect storm of social media and the people who are in charge of things right now making these decisions that are just based in a lot of hate and miscommunication Uh, And and I think these kids have, uh, you know, I don't recall when I was their age being so hyper aware of all the things in the world going on around me. And they are so hyper aware. Um, And on one level, I think, you know, online gives them a place where they, they become sort of desensitized to it. And it also gives them a place where they can be passionate about things. So it's a real sort of conflict, I think. But, uh, you know, I, I I don't blame them. The, everything is sort of feels like it's going to, pardon my language, it's going to shit <laughs> at the moment. And, uh, you know, and they, they, I think they feel this sort of burden of responsibility, but also this inability to do anything until this certain uh, demographic kind of moves out dies out falls by the wayside it's tough
0: how much do you think the pending environmental collapse and what that will cause plays into this
1: i think it plays into it a great deal Uh, i know that my kids and their friends are always talking about and worrying about various things in the environment Um, and you know, will our planet survive? Really, how much time do we have? What what is my role in this? And, you know, they do see a lot of activists their age kind of doing things. And um I think it I, you know, it's it's very daunting to think that the planet you're living on could disappear at any time. I mean, where is the grounding? You know, this is this is what I worry about for them. Where where is the grounding? It's not even the literal earth that you're standing on. You know, so uh, it's tricky. Yeah.
0: How do you talk to them about it? For a lot of the parents that listen, what would you say? Any words of wisdom?
1: You know, I try mostly to listen, and then uh, because I I don't have the answer, right? So I'm not going to pretend I have. The answer to you, know, well, you should do, or you need to, you know, it's sort of like, well, how do you feel? And what do you think? And and how can I help you through this moment? Um, because I think that's that's more supportive than trying to always give them the answer to things or solve things. I think that's a thing that we do as parents. Obviously, we always want to fix everything. We hate to see our kids in pain or worried. But these are things that, you know, we can't wrap our heads around either. So I think the more we can just engage in the dialogue and work things through kind of together and really listen to what they have to say, like value their input. I think that helps. Um, Yeah, I I think that's really a helpful way to kind of approach it sometimes.
0: On the parental side, how concerned are you about their future, given what we know? And the Earth will be fine, but without sustainable ecosphere, it might the Earth might take a million years to purge off the parasite. But the Earth will be fine, and of course, every other species would be better off. We just had that massive Chernobyl-like train derailment in East Palestine, and of course, the corporate media isn't really covering it because they're rather they're talking about balloons or Brad and Angelina's latest fight, or how and or what pharmaceuticals you need to be taking. How do you, as a parent, feel from your side on this?
1: I It worries me all the time. I mean, I, I'm sending three young, you know, at this moment, open, eager minds off into a world that is full of things that could just crush their spirit at any moment. Um and I worry about it all the time. I worry about uh, their success, how they're going to take care of themselves, how uh, their interpersonal relationships, uh, you know, I, 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 do, I think about it all, all the time. Um, but that being said, I, you know, I try not to walk around full of doom and gloom. Um, I often try to point out, you know, the helpers, the people doing the work, the, the, uh, ability for the ki- my own kids to do the work, you know, so I try to give some hope at the same time.
0: And I have found, and from the show I've learned more over and over again, that doing anything, being involved, especially on the micro level does make you feel better because you do see the difference you make.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I think, you know, trying to get them to sort of pay attention to the smaller things versus the giant things, you know, the things they can really manage, the way they treat each other, the way they, you know, treat the environment in in their surroundings, you know, all of those things, because they make a huge difference. But they're also, like you said, there's something you can see. And so you you can see the result of your own action.
0: Tell me about this book, how did it come into being?
1: You know, I I have been writing for kids, obviously, for a long time, and I have this series of books, the I Am series, which covers a lot of sort of mindfulness and uh, self-care and caring for the world and things that I, I, I feel like kids really need to talk about and practice, um, considering a lot of the adults around us are not very good examples of those things right now so there are some that are but some that are not and um i started you know i talk to a lot of parents and adults and teachers whenever i visit schools or do workshops or things and i i hear the worry i hear the the kind of feelings that they're you know they're not not quite feeling seen or they're you know not really confident about sharing their challenges or things like that and i just felt like if i could somehow talk about you know if i could allow myself to be vulnerable enough to talk about my own struggles challenges journey that maybe just that would be enough to help someone else feel seen and supported and not alone because i i know you know i i didn't have that i have friends and i have things like that but i think when i was going through some of the hardest things in my life i didn't have that community or i didn't feel that it was okay to share all of that um without you know feeling like that was a weakness or something so i really just wanted to to talk basically and just be open about what life has thrown in my direction. And, you know, everybody's trauma is different, everybody's challenges are different, but we can connect on a lot of human levels. And and I wanted to talk about it.
0: It's a brave book, too. Did you uh, hem and haw at all to be so authentic?
1: Uh, you know, the book, it, it sort of morphed as I wrote, and there were definitely, I it was really important to me to be authentic and open. Um, but there were moments during the process where I was like, oh, my God, why am I sharing all of that? Uh, maybe not, you know, maybe that's a bit much. But I sort of pushed myself through because I thought, you know, either you're going to do it or you're not. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had to kind of work through it.
0: Talk about the title, too. Will you? I love the title.
1: Oh, Say One Kind Thing. Thank you. Yeah, actually, it took quite a few uh, meetings to come to that. <laughs> but I think ultimately the title is a, a really good reflection of what's inside because, you know, at, at its core, it's about this this journey, this process of learning to to say kind things to yourself um to treat yourself better to love yourself more and you know it all starts with one kind thing um and it's a journey so uh if you can just sort of bring yourself back to that statement up oh, just one kind thing you know it's like one breath one kind thing that's how you begin to heal to um change your inner critic's voice, you know, all of those things. So I'm really, I'm really happy with the, with the title for sure.
0: And honestly, it starts within because if you're not kind to yourself, you can't really legitimately and authentically extend it outwardly. I thought one day I might out outrun or out evolve my critic. He's only gotten stronger, or meaner, or lurking. And so we coexist. I just have he's around and you know, he's, uh, he's a genius in hindsight. God, can he pick stocks five years after the fact? <laughs> and just that second, you know, but he's part of the thing. And he originally developed, I think, to keep me safe. Like, if we don't mess up, we'll have less pain. But now, you know, it's just, so he's lurking. And it's omnipresent. Everybody has one.
1: Yeah, everybody has one. It starts when you're really young, I think. And I, I you know... Uh, I do feel like that voice appears to keep you safe. It, it's just, it, you know, it and and it's probably wrong in its advice, but it, it is trying to keep you safe. Um, but I feel like you, you like you said, you sort of acknowledge that it's there. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you can rid yourself of your you know inner critic i'm not suggesting that you can do certain things and and it, everything's good um it's just again it, i think it kind of comes back to this awareness like okay i know this voice is here um i actually know what it's going to say to me in this situation but i actually don't have to listen to that voice like there is another voice that is the real me that i can choose to listen to so this guy can be here hanging out and telling me things and, and, you know, some days I will listen to the critic because I'm just tired and that's the way it goes. And some days I can say, you know, yeah. Okay. Thanks. I see what you're doing here, but actually this is what I'm doing. So it, it, you know, it's a relationship.
0: (laughs) And it takes practice, right? It's an ongoing lifetime process.
1: Oh God. Yeah. Just when you think you've got it down comes, Smacks you right in the face again. So,
0: <laughs> talk about the tools you t- you show so eloquently in the book uh, that can help the listener kind of mitigate this and learn to work in this way on the inner side.
1: Well, I think you know for for me, what was really helpful were, of course, my my practices, right? My my yoga, my mindfulness. But I think that um, yeah, and I'm a, I'm one of those people who loves mantras and affirmations and things like that. And I find that if you practice them enough, you start to internalize them. But I I think where it starts is uh, actually being easy on yourself, uh, giving yourself the space to feel what you feel. And then have a conversation about it with yourself so instead of shaming yourself again you know for feeling angry or for feeling like you're a fraud or for feel you know instead of making those things so negative noticing those things trying to understand sort of why they're coming up and then Literally having a different conversation with yourself. It just, it, and obviously, it's something that feels quite awkward, um, but ultimately it doesn't. Ultimately, it just becomes sort of part of who you are. Okay, I'm having this chat with myself now. I hear, you know, I hear this voice, but now I'm going to counter that voice with something kind, with something better, with something different. And I, I think it's just a practice, you know. It's a it's a journey. I tell the kids that I visit, whenever I visit a school, I have them say out loud to themselves, you know, I am a good person, I am a kind person, I'm a beautiful person, right? I love myself, and and then I talk with them afterwards, and uh, especially the older ones, and you know, they always share how weird that was or awkward that was, but. And I say, you know, of course, it's awkward because we don't normally stop in the middle of wherever we are and say these things, especially out loud to ourselves. But like you said, the more you are kind to yourself, the more you remember how wonderful and amazing you are, the better able you are to be kind to others, to have empathy, you know, and sympathy and love because you're doing it for you. And it just takes practice.
0: And like anything, first time you ever flew or drive or try to hit a golf ball, you name it, sing, play the piano, you're awkward. The more you do anything, the neural networks in your brain grow and you become more comfortable with it. And you have to kind of counteract all the, uh, we're bombarded with all these images that try to tell us we are the most shallow version of what we are, what we look like, where we're from, our names, what we buy, which is, you know, in essence, it's a not true in fact who we are is eternal and what i hear in in you is having the essence the observer the eternal aspect running the show and then when these other aspects show up like a patient mom or dad you just say no no i'm not doing that oh good interesting thank you for sharing or maybe i'm just projecting my thing like oh no we're not discussing this at three in the morning but you can catch me after a cup of coffee maybe so it's the adult in the room, the eternal adult.
1: Right. No, exactly. I and I think that, you know, again, it's that awareness that really helps you decipher what is your own essence and what is that other voice that's just trying desperately not to be hurt or, you know, not to be scared or not to be on, you know, what whatever it's it's telling you. Um and you you learn over time to to speak to yourself differently as as yourself
0: how important is gratitude in all of this oh well
1: gratitude is always important <laughs> um no really because you know, we can we can get very caught up in in you know in this culture as you said about uh that tells us how shallow we are or what we're not or all of those things and we can get lost in that kind of spiral and feel like we are nothing. We have nothing. Um, you know, what's there to be grateful for? And I think I think this happens to kids, too. That's why there's a lot of this depression and anxiety. It's sort of like everything is hopeless. We're all just a bunch of terrible people, you know, whatever it is. And gratitude, cultivating a sense of gratitude for Anything. Start again. Starting with the small. Starting with the awkward. Starting. Starting with one thing. Uh, just. Yeah. You know, I got up this morning. Like that is a lot to be grateful for. I. I have coffee. <laughs> that is a lot to be grateful for. You know. Um. It, and I. I try to to notice my gratitude, sort of moment to moment, uh, because things things change so much in life. So for example, I can be having a great day and everything's going my way. And in two seconds, something horrible is happening. And so I have to be able to, even in that moment, kind of find the gratitude, you know, okay, this is horrible, but This part is still okay, or in this moment, I'm still safe, or you know, whatever that one thing is. And I I think gratitude carries you a long way. You can even have gratitude for your inner critic because, again, their intentions are good. Um, they're just not going about it the right way,
0: and it sets the mind off on a course. It's almost like a trajectory. I do in the shower in the morning, or when I sip the coffee, the beloved coffee we spoke at the beginning about, I'll just start naming things that if you didn't have it, they're obvious, but they would be huge, like water, clean water, warm water. I slept in a bed. I had shelter. I have friends. I have transportations. I love having the show. I was looking forward to talking to you. I'm healthy. It doesn't hurt today that much. And what's going to happen that's magical? Wow. Wow. I have wheels. You know, every time I drive the car and I see people at a bus station, I feel like how lucky I am. And then the mind then goes, and I'll say, find me more things. And it's like a dog. It goes off and runs to find gratitude reasons rather than why I don't have a Gulfstream five and it would look different or a hundred other stupid things.
1: And it's sort of endless. I mean, the list is endless. You know, you walk outside and there's a beautiful flower. There are leaves on the ground. There's, you know, a mailbox where I can receive mail. It's just very, like all of it, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for all of it. Um, but it is one of those things I think also, like you said, you know, you practice sort of running through the list in the morning. I think, I think it's something, it doesn't always come, uh, automatically. So taking a moment to notice it, to recognize it, to acknowledge it is really helpful.
0: There's a great chapter in your book called "Live Free." Will you talk about that?
1: Oh, live free! Yeah, so that chapter was inspired by and is about my child um, in the book, Jesse, who is uh, transgender, and we have sort of been on this journey together as mother and child, um, and you know, I. I always thought I was this sort of very open and easygoing. And, and, and I, you know, and I am to a degree, but I, there was a lot I needed to unpack a lot of my uh, own views I needed to unpack. And, you know, the freedom in this chapter, I, I sort of had to remember what it really felt like for me to be free, meaning be exactly who I was without, you know, worrying about anybody's thoughts about me just loving me being me and did I have that experience and what did that feel like and how could that give me more insight into what my child was going through uh you know and thankfully I'm grateful for the fact that I I did have that period in my life um where I just felt I, I was who I am And I was at my essence. I was at my core. I was myself. And I was around people who saw that and were with me in this journey. And so that tapping back into that sort of gave me more um, understanding about, you know, the dysphoria or the, 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 body issues, the not feeling right in what you've been labeled as, um, or the lens you're viewed through. And, uh, I think it really helped our whole, their whole process and, and our whole relationship. Definitely moments that were difficult and I felt stupid, (laughs) Uh, and almost, you know, embarrassed by my own sort of cisgender viewpoint uh, but also again grateful that i've had the opportunity to work through that and to learn with someone i love the most in the world
0: and in your book you talk about acceptance and letting go and there's nothing like children and kids to teach you that probably in the master's class right
1: yes there's nothing like children to sort of bring up your own childhood trauma (laughs) and then make you do the work you know
0: give some words and tips here because there's a lot of parents out there who write in help how does one accept and let go when we love so deeply our kids and we don't want anything to happen to them but ultimately we have no control especially as they get older
1: yeah no it's really i mean i will acknowledge that it's very hard um when you love so deeply that the kind of love i feel for my children is a love that i never experienced before, probably will never experience again. Um, And it's so hard to let go and to let them fail, to let them feel pain or feel disappointment um, because we just, you know, there's nothing more painful than to see your child in pain. But I think remembering that they are not Really, an extension of you. They are their own entities, uh, and they actually want to be able to do the work. I, I, I did have um, a sort of I don't know argument discussion with my son, who came home from uh, college for for the Christmas break, for the holiday break, and. I was like, you know, well, we have to make sure that you meet with your advisor and you do all of the, I was, you know, very in this sort of control. And he just, he stopped me and he was like, mom, you have to let me do it myself. And if I fail, I fail myself. You've got to let me do it because otherwise I feel like, A, you don't, you know, have faith in me and B, it's not my experience. And that ability to communicate that to me was I was like okay well that's that's all I needed you know well everything else doesn't matter that's that's what I needed to know he can advocate and communicate but it, it's really hard as a parent and so how do you let go you just you, it's again I think it comes back to this sort of awareness um and and understanding that a lot of the the ways we step in or um, you know interfere or hold on are things that we're trying to do to have control of which there's none ultimately and sort of take care of our own inner child you know who has all these worries and fears and what if the and and so by kind of interrupting those in our children we're fixing ourselves um and just sort of recognizing when those little voices when those projections come in and how to kind of breathe through them i you know i i one thing i've always believed in is communicating and maybe i overshare with my children maybe i don't but just giving them the space to to say what they need to ask questions to be honest about the not knowing and also just you know telling them you love them you're doing your best
0: you have to be super proud that he was able to communicate that way to you
1: oh my god I was like what okay that was brilliant go ahead fail do whatever you need to do I don't care
0: <laughs> put you in a timeout man he, he checked man he's like you he gave him the tools and he jujitsued in a beautiful way
1: Oh, yeah, they've always been good at things like that. Like they like to tell me you're not being very mindful in this moment. But you know, and that's the thing, like I'm a human being. So yes, I practice all these things. I work at these things. I try really hard, but I screw it up sometimes. And that's, that's okay. That's the way it is.
0: The power of an apology too, especially from a parent can be very healing.
1: Oh, very healing. Very healing. Yeah. Because a lot of, you know, we do have more experience in a lot of ways and we do have sort of vision of the bigger picture and the things that, you know, could happen or whatever. And and often we impose that on our kids. And I I do think the, you know, the power of an apology or uh, coming back to the conversation and saying, you know what, in that moment, I actually was thinking about myself or I was doing ABC and that was really about you I'm sorry you know so um yeah the power of an apology is massive
0: before I let you go I'm gonna put you in a time machine what do you want to tell 14 year old Susan since you know all this now (laughs) as you laugh oh
1: 14 year old Susan oh you know it's interesting I, I think about things like that a lot like what would I tell my younger self and what but part of me is sort of like, well, would I say anything because whatever I went through and had to go through kind of got me here. Um, and maybe, you know, I, maybe it would have saved me a lot of struggle or tears or whatever. Maybe I could have gotten here faster if I had given myself some really good advice. Um, but maybe not. you know, maybe I I was okay making it through the way I was making it through. Um, I think I would just really want that 14-year-old Susan to know that she was loved. She was worthy and she was loved. And that was enough. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash matters most and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.